0: Hi, and welcome to IndieWire's Filmmaker Toolkit Podcast. My name is Crystal O'Fall. I'm the deputy editor of film and TV craft at IndieWire. And my guest today, the showrunners of The Good Fight, Michelle and Robert King. Today's podcast is brought to you by the Apple TV Plus original documentary, Beastie Boy story. Beastie Boys Mike Diamond and Adam Horowitz tell you an intimate personal story of their band and 40 years of friendship in this live documentary experience directed by their longtime friend and collaborator, director Spike Jones. The film reunites Beastie Boys with Spike over 25 years after he directed their immortal uh, single Sabotage. Wow, 25 years seems like yesterday. Such a great music video. And this is a great movie. It's four-year Emmy consideration in all eligible categories, including Outstanding Documentary or nonfiction special, visit fyc.appletvplus.com. I really like this film a lot more than I expected. And uh, you know, while I'm plugging it, I might as well plug the podcast. Uh, recommend that you go back a couple episodes and listen to my conversation with Spike and his editor, uh, Jeff Buchanan. It was a lot of fun. I, I did start watching The Good Wife back in 2009, and the thing uh, that was fascinating to me right from the start with that was in 2009, that idea of here's a a show that's going to touch upon certain procedural elements that we expect from a, a lawyer show, a legal show, but also this, this uh, building in serialization. And it was something that as the show evolved, it, it seemed like something that you kept playing with going back and forth and, and not necessarily even having a set formula, but when you needed to go really serialized with these characters, but also to deliver the goods. I'm wondering... I imagine that's something that was a process that obviously fed into Good Wife, but I'm wondering if you could talk about that, that evolution and finding that balance, because your show was really, that show was really great in in pushing that network TV form forward.
1: Thank you. That was probably an area of more discussion with the network up front than almost of any other element of the show. And they were, at that point, not used to doing shows that had such a serialized element and they were concerned and because Robert what were the percentages we were thinking at the top were we saying 50 50 at that point
2: our interest was always doing something that was more 50 50 uh, because that's just whenever we did pilots we tended to do that uh, but I believe we told CBS it would be more 70 30 uh, 70 procedural 30 percent serialized so they would feel comforted and Michelle my memory you know Studios and networks are very nervous the first five or six shows. They're constantly looking over your shoulder that you're doing. And there were some executives who were very much like, no, you need to resell the pilot every episode, you know, for the first five or six. And we weren't leaning that way. And then they did a test, like a survey, that's, right, Michelle?
1: That's my that's my recollection as well, um, that – very soon after the pilot, and it, perhaps it was even the second episode, um, they tested it. And I they I think, I can't recall if that was one of those tests where they do it in Las Vegas, but they had data. And they had asked people, how do you feel about the percentage of procedural versus serialization? And uh, I think they got 100% saying that they liked it. And then suddenly people at the network and studio felt a lot more comfortable. I
2: think their instinct was to come to us with data saying, you got to do less serialized. And then they were proven wrong by data, you know, which is, which is a crazy way to run it, a railroad. But, you know, they 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 when they have data on their side, they will be your friend for life.
0: Mm-hmm. And what was interesting about it is obviously even for a um, procedural show, obviously you are trying to... Uh, tell the arc of legal cases as it relates to character but suddenly in this situation and 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 i think this probably very much informed a good fight which obviously is what we're going to be talking about but that idea of what you could do with character and what you could and how that could intersect with the legal cases it's it's almost beyond thematic it becomes it becomes character choice and decision in and of itself in relationship to these these larger stories
2: well if i could say it's probably Michelle's and my starting with that we were not fans of how courtroom drama has played out. Uh, It always felt like courtroom drama was about giving the better speech. If you gave the more emotional or truer speech, you won a case. And we thought it would be more honest if these lawyers really were cunning and thought of court cases as heists, as ways to have their narrative trump the opposition's narrative. So I think we started with the idea of how procedural wraps it way around character and then character evolved around that. It seemed like we we started turning it into a show that was about Alicia Florrick who was the main character, how she learned to become a better lawyer and not less necessarily a more moral lawyer if that made sense. Michelle.
1: Uh-huh. Yeah, and we've never chosen our cases for thematic resonance. It was because they were of interest to us and seemed like they would be of interest to our characters. But, but we were never, you know, looking to be the kind of show that, you know, if a doctor is going through an emotional breakup there, they get a a heart attack case kind of a thing.
0: Yeah. The whole, he needs closure in his real life. So he's going to get closure in this (laughs) divorce case. (laughs) Um, So, Based on all of that experience you had with The Good Wife and then, and then moving into The Good Fight, which is a different thing, but is a spinoff, beyond the characters, what, what did you take from that experience and what you learned about what you could do with these procedurals and how did you think about it, you know, or, or, or these serialized elements with the procedural? What, how did you think about that as you started to think of this, this spinoff project?
2: we probably start it with the practical, which is we hated doing 22 episodes a year. (laughs) And and when you do fewer episodes, 10 or 13, they have to be more meaningful. And we don't really think of meaning as trying to communicate a message of love and brotherhood to all mankind. Because I think we tend to not think TV should be about that. Because you get enough preaching in the other parts of your life. So I think, Michelle, and correct me if I'm wrong, I Think we were looking for resonance that, um, was about more the politics of how, what was going on in the world at the time. So we wanted to be more contemporary. There was always a sense of Good Wife was a comment on the Obama administration. There, you know, Obama was mentioned. It was supposed to be very contemporary of the moment. But we felt with Trump getting elected, there was more wa- a way to make the show feel more of the moment and what people were going through emotionally in that moment.
1: Yeah, absolutely. This show is more political than The Good Wife was ever meant to be. I mean, and it was, I don't think it was conceived that way, but once we came into this particular time in history, it just seemed like that was the show to write. And the
2: other, the other element of that was not to preach to the audience who they should support or not, but try to follow these characters, emotional, uh, Emotionally through what all of us were going through at the same time, which was sometimes dropping of guardrails in our culture, dropping of guardrails in the law. And then, you know, with uh, Christine Baranski's character, Microdosing, suddenly seeing the world through these very skewed eyes Mm -hmm. about what was going on.
0: I was looking it up today. uh, The first episode aired on February 19th, 2017. Um, You know, my understanding of the way network television works is it doesn't (laughs) things don't come together necessarily that quickly. So I have to imagine you're maybe heading in a more political direction. You're you're probably writing and conceiving of this show against the backdrop of the election of 2016. But I have to imagine the, the conversation radically changes November 9th before you, you you get ready to air this thing three months later.
2: <laughs> yes. <laughs> we had started the writer's room in September and had built the first three stories. And we were two or one week of maybe a week and a half into shooting the pilot or the first episode when the election hit. And the original idea was that Christine Baranski's character was gonna retire from the law because she had all her money saved up, she was gonna buy someplace overseas and just relax. And it it was really based on the idea that women had broken the last glass ceiling, the presidency, (laughs) and that she she was kind of saying that, uh, taking that as a guide to, you know, I should sit on my laurels, and she's gonna write a book, and then obviously there's a pyramid scheme, her money uh, just gets stolen away, and so she's kind of backed out, It, it was all about trying to get Christine back to being an underdog and not a top dog. And then obviously we had a better plan when the country changed its direction and Trump was elected instead of Hillary. So it was no longer about women breaking the last glass ceiling. It was kind of about a Christine who comes back to a country that makes her angry. Uh, And that felt like a better way to go. So Michelle and I rewrote the opening, rewrote some of the scenes still to be shot to make that all work with this new paradigm. Michelle, do you have any other memory of that?
1: No, it. Yeah, no, that's exactly as I recall it, too. And what's helpful is that the writer's room is filled with the most uh, savvy and smart and politically aware writers imaginable. So everyone is gobbling up the news every day. So it, it really fuels this storytelling.
0: I, I want to talk about that because... In, in- before we move to season four, which I loved, I want to just talk a little bit about the first three seasons. You know, it's not preachy, but it is pol- political, and 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 there's an element of like, it's interesting. It's, we're recording this on June third, the you know the eighth day of of, of protests in this in this country. This will air probably more in, in, in a few weeks from now, but you know that idea of where and how to comment on the political the now in a narrative way is something that you've really kind of, ex- you've done it a whole bunch of different ways in these first three seasons. You know, I think about like, you know, the idea that the world is becoming unglued, you know, in, 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 but not that sense of like, spe- you know, with Trump as a backdrop, we have times where, You know, you've created like last season, the whole fictional element of, you know, what, what can the two main characters, Liz and and Diane do about the election and the sabotage? And then there's, you know, literally sometimes that the plot lines intersect. And I'm curious, I I have to imagine that's something that's been, and I want to eventually talk about season four, but that has to be something where it's like an experiment in different modes of storytelling of how you're going to intersect with the political, right?
2: Yes. I think the second season for us was Christine's character starting to microdose, you know, and that it was very hard to tell what was news that was real. We had a news story about Trump having a a pet pig that he put in the map room of the White House. And it it just was it's 20 percent off of reality, but it's not that far off a reality and this said
1: i I could name at least 10 stories that seem weirder than
2: that (laughs) yes and then there was a a story in there about that he was going to take um seven goal goats to the uh uh to one of the conferences in europe and the democrats were up in arm because why is trump taking goats to a summit? And it it turned out it was a typo in a press release by the White House that it was goals, not goats. And that just felt like, okay, one of those (laughs) little slapstick moments attached to what's going on uh, with this administration and so much of the incompetence mixed in with um, uh, mendacity. So I think what we really wanted was to try to create this absurd world where you weren't sure whether the news was real or not. And with Christine, you're in her head, you're in her point of view without doing any silly camera tricks where things are out of focus. You're in a world where you're watching TV news that seems possibly too absurd to be real, but she's not sure what is real or not. And so I think that allowed us to do point of view storytelling, get inside Christine's head, not as a consistent thing. Um, You know, it's not, You're not stuck in her head. You go to other characters, you follow their plots. But there is this element when you go to Christine, you're not sure what you're seeing is true or not. I I don't know if you want us to go to. Well, no, I mean, what you did
0: just set up is both in terms of the original conception of the show before Trump got elected. And then what you just said about Christine's character, that the wonderful first episode of this season which seems to combine the two, the two things, which is a, a little taste of what I think the original conception of the show was and then also this idea of being in, in, in her kind of alternate ra- reality with the microdosing.
1: And it feels like the show is most fun when instead of focusing on what's actually happening, it focuses on what it feels like as a liberal like Diane to live through what's happening and, and how it's just surreal, and that it either feels like you're in a dream or you're taking drugs.
2: And we wanted each season to start in a little more reality and move to absurdity. And that's why both season one, two, and I think even three end in some kind of disaster. Like last season, it was ball, light, uh, ball lightning, which is a real phenomenon that started all these fires throughout the city. And uh, it's First season was a blackout. You know, there are all these elements of chaos that start getting worse and worse over the course of the season. And then season four is different because we started there. Let's talk about
0: that in terms of, did you come into season four? You know, we were just talking about what you learned from The Good Wife and brought over to The Good Fight. Um, My personal opinion, I've really enjoyed The Good Fight, but my, my personal opinion is, is some of the highest notes that you've hit with this show have come in you know, these six, these, these last, uh, you know, six, seven episodes. And I'm, I'm curious if, and maybe the show just keeps getting better, but I'm also wondering along these lines, if there's things that you've learned, um, about how to handle these elements, Robert, I think you just touched upon some of it, but, um, in some ways the political becomes more probing and, 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 and a little bit more satisfying. And once again, I, I enjoyed the first three seasons, but it feels as like maybe, you fine-tuned some things that you were trying in the first three.
2: Uh, Michelle, I have one thought. Maybe you'd have another. I, I, in The very first season of Good Wife, we did an episode where you were in the jury room, and you looked at our characters from the jury's point of view as, you know, these characters hopefully you've come to love. Um, and what was great was there was a new structural paradigm that allowed you to look at the story, the, the narrative in a different way and the very fact of why network is often looked down upon gives us the ability to explore possibly more than if it were a a netflix show because it allows these chapters to have their own um structural paradigm so i think what we learned and what we continue to learn is you can use what is seen as a weakness of network writing you know the the this tendency to um have closed-ended stories to do something that closed-ended structural um, adventures, being adventurous with structure. So I think we will do one story last season where you go through, in the first half hour, one case, and then you back up and you do a second case, but in theory they're happening at the same time. And so there are these ways you can play with structure. So I think most of what we've learned is the ability to play with structure. But Michelle? And,
1: And not only that, I I I don't know if it comes under the heading of learning or just noticing. We're on a different platform. And so there is a little more freedom not in the things like uh nudity or cursing which is not especially important to our show, but um structural things and just sort of nutty things like okay, now the characters are all going to get soliloquies. Or we're going to do an animated (laughs) short in every episode. I mean, those are things that you can get away with more on a streaming service than you can on network. And so that's just been fun for us to play with.
2: It's odd that shows don't do that more because it does allow you to play. I mean, play is the key. What is just fun to do? And so last year we did, you know, a two-minute cartoon with a Jonathan Colton song for each episode. And... You know it just if we were just doing it because it pleased us
0: <laughs>
2: and CBS <laughs> was willing to pay for pleasing, but I mean, it seems like streaming should give everybody more freedom to have some fun with this stuff
0: was that built I apologize for not knowing was that was that built into this from the start that this was designed for the CBS all access platform that was that's kind of
1: yes
0: right from the start you yeah. knew that okay.
1: yeah
2: we actually weren't supposed to run the show. We were uh going to, you know, do one of those nice things where you produce and you let someone else do it mm-hmm. you cash checks. Yeah. We we wanted to really cash the checks. <laughs> but then then it uh it, we kind of got wrapped up in it and then, you know, with uh the new administration it seemed like there was new meaning to the show that wasn't a duplicate of Good Wife. But so it was supposed to be all access, but it wasn't supposed to be us.
0: I was going to ask this at the end and you know, my colleague um uh Tambay uh wrote a, a really nice piece about your show. But in it he he made the case um that, you know, in this very world weird world we're living in, it would be great, especially with uh, you know, network struggling, it'd be great if if CBS put the good fight up on, on broadcast. Is that something that's ever discussed? Is that something that you would want? Uh yes. Michelle,
2: sorry.
1: Uh yes and no. I it would be nice in this time if it were run on broadcast just because it feels as though we've done episodes that speak to the current moment. Mm-hmm. Um, in terms of shifting the whole show mm-hmm. over to broadcast, I I like being on streaming yep, yep. Uh, because of the freedom, especially in terms of running time. So yep. uh, I think that they should probably be Uh, looking for a way to to show
2: it. Mm -hmm. Especially in this time. I mean, the incident in Central Park in the Ramble, uh, we did an episode this last season where Luca, who has a child who looks white, is kind of like a Karen thinks She's kidnapping her and phones the police. So it's all, um, it feels like so much of the show is kind of commented on the current moment.
0: Mm -hmm. Well, you know, Episode three, and but in general, I want to say this about the show. This show is is it handles race in an incredibly interesting way. I always find it thought-provoking. Um, episode three this season, um, what I think the setup is what? The DNC is asking the law firm to come up with ideas about how to reach African-American voters. And it leads to a conversation of, of, of reparations. And I, I think that's the one that also deals with the N-word. But, you know, I, I you know. We could use that as an example because it's a wonderful episode, but I'm wondering if we could talk a little bit about the writers room and um, and how because race is a tricky thing and it's built into a lot of these stories. I think about Lucas story at the end of last season is, you know, is she black enough to become a partner Uh, and, and the conversations that are in the writing room and how it just feels to me like this is such a richly informed show on this topic and i am wondering if you could just talk a little bit about that and and, and if if possible let's use use this wonderful episode three from the season as an example
1: well i'll I'll start by again reiterating this is a an extremely smart thoughtful group who I believe genuinely like each other and respect each other, which helps There are eight writers other than Robert and myself um I think it it's split evenly in terms of gender, right, Robert? Yes. I think there are four women, four men. Uh, two of them are African-American, six are white. Uh, age age range goes from late 60s to mid-30s. Uh, I think two of them are gay, the rest are straight. So in other words, there's a lot of different experience in the writer's room. So that helps in terms of storytelling and, you know, hopefully not missing the mark at least every time.
2: And Davida, who wrote that episode, uh, what was interesting in her was the idea of discussion of reparations. She's African-American and she thought that would be interesting. And I was always, interested in the Walter Mosley situation where, where he was doing a Star Trek all access show and use the N word in a conversation that was about the racism involving that word. It was, a, it was in the quoting a racist cop mm-hmm. and uh, he was called on the carpet by HR because someone complained. So it just seemed like combining those two ideas was interesting because reparations on its own could get preachy, even though what was interesting is there's a real conversation going on mm-hmm. uh And Michelle and I basically had almost nothing to do with that, which was all DaVita and Orin, uh, you know, just finding out a little bit more of the split of opinion about reparations. And then probably we pushed it to, is there any way that you can go to this N-word conversation? Because that basically was an absurdist (laughs) surprise on something that was more the Patty Chayesky version and then... You have this absurdist comedy of errors involving HR. Mm -hmm. So I kind of think this the the show, The Groom, tends to combine ideas through this mixture of people who have different interests. Um, I think the same thing happens with the episode that is about slave play. Um, You know that a inspired by that's inspired by slave play, (laughs) which is episode four, the one right after that uh you know it it it's that, but other people had other interests, and once you threw that into the pot, you were surprised where the narrative was gonna take you.
0: It feels to me to a certain degree like it's because of this the show takes a non preachy element to this it doesn't have answers about this, but it's it's not afraid to have a very open conversation of smart people about these topics. And then the writers also find a way to build a narrative into it. It it, it, it it's, it's a wonderful combination of those things.
1: Thanks. I think what's fortunate for us is that hopefully people really like these characters, and the characters don't agree with mm-hmm. each other. And I think it's difficult for a lot of shows if they only have one character of color, and then suddenly that character has a huge burden of having to espouse a point of view that's supposed to represent everyone. And we're fortunate in that our cast is majority African-American. And so you're going to see different characters with different points of view. And so suddenly you're not having to speak for everyone. There's no suggestion that one could.
2: I mean, one of the more interesting characters in my mind is Delroy, uh, his character, Adrian Bozeman's love interest, who's a judge who's completely corrupt, um, Cynthia. And what's interesting about her is she has a rationale behind her corruption, which you understand and hopefully sympathize with. But, um, you know, it allows you to not make her stand in for every African-American judge.
0: You know, there's a wonderful, uh, dating back to Goodwife the show has always been awesome with guest stars and the way that in particular, the way you handle, uh, recurring judges and, and opposing lawyers. But, uh, you introduced one this, this year, as we're talking about politics, um, of the, um, of the Trump appointed judge, which, which was in some ways the sharpest political commentary, but also it, it, it Mark Sachs is your, um, is one of your casting directors. And there's an element here of like, there was a lot of ways to go with that. And you're not downplaying this guy's deeply unqualified, but there's just something about the casting of these, of these guest judges and these guest characters. That's always been so smart. And that's, that that's an example where that character could have been written off the rails to a certain degree. If, if you didn't find someone that could have a certain genuineness about them in playing this
2: I think that is the – Mark Sachs, you're right to bring up his name. His connection to the Broadway community and his ability to get exactly the right person based on some comic shtick at the center of a character, but then adds some level of either reality or humanity around it. I mean the joke of these Trump appointees is based on the reality of the – the confirmation hearing where the guy just didn't know some of the basic facts of the law. So Michelle and I just kind of and the room ran with that of having just the most unqualified judges who are, who don't know why they're deciding what they're dying. Deciding can be easily swayed by somebody using a lot of odd Latin terms, like to pretending like, oh yeah, I, I, you're right, you're right, the Latin terms, right. And they'll decide. But so it's, it's just a funny way to do shtick in the middle of what is political commentary, but not, not really dangerous political commentary. No one's being shot. It's just kind of funny.
1: And we also benefit from the fact that we film the show in New York. Yeah. So we have access to a lot of Broadway actors who wouldn't mind coming and doing a quick episode while they're either not on stage or we work around their schedules
0: and how do you handle in the rotation from the David hammer to the, to the Michael, um, I was about to say, call Michael Keaton. <laughs> uh, you know, um, uh, you know, the, uh, the Michael J. Fox of course is who I'm talking mm-hmm. about. Um, how do you handle the um, bringing them back? I have to imagine there's a certain check-in about their schedule, but then I also imagine there's a certain element in the writer's room of, Which judge do we want to throw into this? Is is there an element of a practical and then also a narrative storytelling element of how you get that wonderful rotation kind of going?
1: Yeah, you're exactly right. It's it's both those things. We will talk in the writer's room. You know, wouldn't it be great to have, let's say, Michael J. Fox in this episode? Mm -hmm. And then it's reaching out to Mark Sachs and saying, can you please find out if Michael might be available?
2: So we do two things. One is pin an actor, which is warn them that this is coming up and are they available? And once you have them pinned, they could still take another job if you don't pay, but hopefully you get a warning ahead of time that they're taking another job. And if that's the case, then we try to jump in with an offer. Some of the difficulties you'll find over the course of the season, like the judge we just talked about, who is a judge, a Trump appointee, it turns out we needed him for last season's last episode, and he was in a Beetlejuice, I think in dress rehearsals. So we really ended up very screwed there. So we created a more, um, let's see, jock-like version of him, a guy who can't stop sweating. It was based mm-hmm. on one of the uh, attorneys generals for a while, and just was an idiot, uh, like a bullethead idiot, but kind of oddly came to the right decision because uh, what was interesting us was like um, people who may not agree with you politically but do kind of think it through even in a kind of an oddball way. So anyway sometimes you'll find that we lose an actor so we have to create a new version of it with a new character.
0: I think one of the first things that people think about with the good fight is those those titles um, and I want to talk about the kind of conception behind them and also the evolution because I'm I, I didn't have time to go back and check this morning but at some point, they started coming later, right? Like they started coming. I don't, I think in the beginning, right. They were kind of somewhat near the beginning, but now you could be going like 10 minutes into an episode and then they drop and you're like, Whoa. And they became even more dramatic. Uh, I'm wondering if you could talk a little bit about the conception and the evolution of, of those.
2: We, um, when you're on network, you only have like a five, 10 second bumper, which is always very frustrating. You know, you're just, you can never develop some kind of conception for the show through the main titles. So when we knew we were doing streaming, we, and we wanted to do something that people would hopefully watch over and over, and you know, to steal a page from Second City TV, we were gonna blow shit up. Uh, blowing shit up in slow motion is one of the more exciting and beautiful acts you can imagine, especially when you slow it down to 25,000 frames per second which we had to get these scientific cameras to do. And um, when you slow it down that much, it's like a blooming rose in a way. And so what we thought is, people are not gonna be able to turn away from this, but what we wanted to do was start it like a, an open credit for Masterpiece Theater, where it's all these things associated with a law, with beautiful David Buckley music over it, and then surprise people like 10 seconds, 20 seconds in with a you know a bottle of wine exploding. So. All this is done by a barnstorm in Los Angeles, and it's a very elaborate process, not just the blowing up of things, but the lighting of it, because when you slow something down to 25,000 frames a second, you need to flood it (laughs) with light. So this studio is like 110 degrees from all the lights on it, and they were finding like the computer screens were melting from the heat of the lights even before they could explode them. So we explode every item three or four times with each you know, different object. And then we choose the best, or as in the case with the phones, we will put them side by side editorially. Um, and David Buckley, we were gonna do this Andy Williams song, <laughs> which is crazy to think about over it because it was the sweet, it was the opposite version of the images. And David Buckley just came up with this amazing kind of Rosini overture that I think Sums up the insanity. We hope the show was going to bring. Um, that's kind of the short version. We just have fun every year, adding another element to explode.
0: Am I wrong, Michelle? It's it's coming later and later, or is that?
1: Um, it is coming a bit later, but um, I hmm. that's just for our fun. We always like to have the credits. Uh, later than most shows, mm-hmm. just because we are hoping that people will get hooked into the story.
0: Yeah. And this dates back to uh, Good Wife. Um, just a, a really fun and uh, amazing use of music. Um, and you mentioned David Buckley, but I, I'm wondering, it's not something that you could usually have time for. <laughs> I wonder if you could talk about the music on the show, uh, which, and 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 I have to imagine some of this was, some of the great experiments you did with Good Wife about how much music and how big of a role music can play in in a show like this.
2: Well, there are probably three areas of music. One is obviously the score, which is David Buckley. The other is our use of songs. And the third is our character singing. Um, I'll talk about the first two, because those are my interests. Mm -hmm. I I don't think we found our rhythm with David Buckley until the fifth season of Good Wife, which is odd to say. And that's when we started to use classical elements consistently, where that became a character within the narrative. Because I think we don't love TV music because it seems to be, you know, cry here, feel emotion here, be moved here, kind of signals. And it always, if you watch um, closed caption at the bottom it, they will put in parentheses what the music is, like emotional sting or whatever. And that feels like all music is about in show. So it's great when it has a character, which David Buckley gave it. And then the songs, which is, Michelle and I just love pop music, but not necessarily pop music of the moment, but also some from the 90s, some from the 80s, you know. And so what's good is to find the direct link between the feel of a scene, which is usually comic and dramatic, and some kind of pop music that uh, offers a bed to it. Either offers an emotional bed that is uninflected, because score would be inflected, it would tell you to think this. But if you have a score, it's usually not telling you to think something, it's just acting as glue that holds it together. So we're real fans of you know, when there's lack of energy in a scene, sometimes a song, not even the words in the song, so drop the lyrics, but that kind of emotion or fun that comes through a song can kind of give a scene pep that doesn't have it. And Michelle.
1: in And in terms of the characters singing, we had a uh, split in the writer's room as to whether we should ever have a musical episode. And uh, some of us thought that was a swell plan and others of us don't like musicals. Uh, So there was um, a detente and a decision that um, in the third season, we would have the characters singing, albeit not in a break into song musical fashion, because honestly, the actors are such glorious singers that it felt borderline sinful not to have them sing.
0: <laughs> it's funny. I, I'm, I'm starting to guess. I, I'm, I'm sensing who is on yeah. which well, side. Can you uh, can you I, guess <laughs> which side I fall
1: on.
0: Yeah. I'm curious, just to go back to David for a second, um, in that sense of getting into sync with him, and 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 realizing how you can use more classical elements, what about the lead time that you can give someone like him uh, to? You know, one of part of it's getting in sync, having a shared language, figuring out how how you can use music, but also there's an element of how much time he has and how much you can kind of cue into him that these are some moments to be thinking about ahead of time.
2: Well, he works fast. I mean, he gets. And the bottom line, what we start the year with is a few months or, you know, he's on other things, but we have maybe a month and a half to talk about some of the themes over the course of the year. And I'm not talking narrative themes. I'm talking what musical themes he may want to pull. Sometimes it's more percussive. We start it with a little more choral elements like two years ago. And so what he does is sends um, little score clips, not connected to anything, just these like one minute clips of what he's thinking of. And it would be like, oh, wow, yes. And then that even becomes inspiring for what we may do in the room. So that's probably where the biggest intellectual or musically intellectual uh, uh, intensity is played. And then each episode, he may have a week and a half, two two weeks to build the score and that can be a little back and forth. I mean, sometimes it's right on. Other times we're not even sure what we're after. Our temp score that we're putting in to give some inspiration of what we think the, the, that mostly the editors put in. Sometimes it might send them off in the wrong direction or we'll all think not knowing what we have. I mean, we did this last episode about Epstein and it had it was more investigative than our show usually is. So mm-hmm. we didn't know how much of it is Dashiell Hammett, how much of it is that. You know, Maltese falcony music. How much of it is this kind of Quincy Jones kind of? You know, so I don't think we ever know whether we got it one hundred percent right, but because everybody's everybody's moving very, very fast.
0: I just want to make sure. Talking about season four, I want to make sure that um, so I want to talk about how it ended and, and and looking forward. I just want to make sure I understand. Basically, w- this this season. When you started it, you were thinking of like a 10-episode a, a arc? Is that what it was, or was it even longer?
1: 10. No, it was meant to be a 10-episode season. And then we were in the middle of filming episode eight uh, when it became obvious that it wasn't safe for us right. to all be together, and we had to shut down production right. because of the pandemic. Right, right.
0: Yeah, basically all of New York kind of shut down that second week of March with that, right around that time. Um, and so in that sense of a larger arc, I mean, things that have kind of come into the news, um, uh, Delroy is leaving the show. Um, I, it, it, there was news that uh, Kush was leaving the show. Was part of the idea here that um, you would finish with them leaving, that you would kind of address, like kind of do their arcs as if they were going?
2: Yes, on Delroy. With Cush, we were going to, and we'll still try, uh, get her back for next year to keep her, you know, uh, to have her story end a little later. But if you watch the season, you see where we're heading with, you know, the goodbyes. Mm -hmm. Uh, Delroy's character is being pursued by the Democratic Party because they don't think they have any African Americans on the debate stage. If, uh, if in two thousand four, if Biden loses. So there's gonna be pursuit of that. And Kush, you know, was befriending this top, like, um, what is the, probably an Oprah Winfrey, like wealthy woman and kind of getting a lot of what she always dreamed of having, which was security, mm-hmm. money, you know. It, it There were uh, outs for it. And, you know, my guess is I'm only feeling fine telling you that because when we come back next season, everything may be up in the air again and we'll start over. Mm -hmm. Uh, You know, it may be that, it may be something else.
1: Who knows? It's, I mean, this is such a peculiar time. One doesn't know what tomorrow is going to bring. Certainly it's hard to say what next season is going to bring. Right.
0: Right. Um, And I assume also was, was, was the idea of the 618 memo, was that also a, a kind of, I mean, maybe it will still exist in your world, but was that also kind of a, a thought of a, a one-season arc type thing?
2: Yes. Okay. That and the STR lorry, the people upstairs who are kind of controlling our firm.
0: Right. Okay. You know, it, it's interesting. The world is upside down, uh, <laughs> and the future of the good fight and the idea of a world in which you would come back—that's uh, a positive thing. It's a wonderful thing, you know, to 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 even beyond for us as fans of the show, but also just you know the idea that y- you're back in a, a stage in New York City shooting sounds like just such a a wonderful thing. And and of course, this is these are small issues, but I have to imagine. There's a an element here of two character storylines, uh, a memo six eighteen. The fact that when you come back, God willing, Trump won't be in office. You know, it's like there's 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 an element here. I have to imagine that I, I imagine your heads are always thinking next season, thinking larger story, and I have to imagine there's a part of you that has to to some degree turn that off to some degree because there's just factors here that you can't figure out, right?
1: Well, we're very focused on the logistics of how and when it might be safe to film again. Because we're not just doing good fight, we're doing um, evil also. Mm -hmm. So again, how, how can we all be safe in a filming environment is very much top of the mind.
2: And I would say the writer's room has withdrawals (laughs) when we close down the writer's room on Good Fight. I mean, because we were done writing, actually. Mm -hmm. So, but every time we close down the room, it's like no one can stop sending each other these articles. Uh Wouldn't this be a great story? Wouldn't that be a great story? But the world changes so much in between. It's hard to devise a year. I mean, we didn't devise the first episode of this season till a month we opened the writer's room because, you know... Uh, just everything that was happening with Me Too, that was happening with Weinstein, and then with what Democrats wishful thinking about what a Hillary presidency would have been like kind of all collided. And you just try to write as close as you can to the zeitgeist for that reason.
0: Do you even have a sense of when you could? I mean, obviously, what Michelle's getting at in terms of the issue of safety and and knowing even when you could start shooting, that's a bigger issue. but. That idea of even putting the writer's room together to start having these conversations, is that something that's, you know, with all these open-ended questions, is that something that is possible in the near future?
1: Well, we're currently um, using Zoom to meet with writers on Mm -hmm. Evil. So even if we're not in a world where it is yet safe to be all in a room together on Good Fight, by the time it rolls around to... um, to start crafting story, my expectation is we can do that via Zoom. Mm -hmm.
2: And my guess is it's similar to last year where we started, I think, October, didn't we, Michelle? The writer's room?
1: It was the fall.
2: Yeah, I (laughs) thought it was the beginning of October. So probably some version of that, but again, you don't know where things are going in November. You know, the idea, uh, uh,
0: the idea of the yeah. good fight, opening a writer's room <laughs> in October is <laughs> is is, <laughs> is is I have to admit is, is slightly uh, is slightly amusing to me. <laughs> um, oh my gosh! Uh, but uh, <laughs> it's like. Hey, well, uh, let, let's just assume we're all going to be you have to you have you have to deal with the story problem of a Biden world, which is a good which is a good problem. <laughs> Man.
2: All right. It'll be less dramatic, maybe, which is. Hey we'll fig- yeah. maybe, you'll, you'll maybe figure it out and we'll, we'll all TV. be okay.
1: Yeah. <laughs> That's when we'll do our
2: musical episode. <laughs> you heard it here, folks. If,
0: if Biden gets elected episode season four, Kush is going to be singing her goodbye.
1: <laughs>
0: um. All right. Well, thank you both. Um. It was, uh, it was a wonderful season and uh, you know, I'm glad, I'm glad they, you know, you, you guys the network and you decided to drop those seven um, and, and leave us where it was because it was uh, they were really uh, this last month has been really great dealing uh, having them you know so thank you it was great it
2: was great thank you for the interview too all right
1: thank you Chris. take care
0: and today's podcast was brought to you by the Apple TV plus original documentary Beastie Boy Story for your Emmy consideration in all eligible categories including Outstanding Documentary